From the Saddle is brought to you by Hewitt Consulting and Communications. Specialising in rural business and marketing design, find them on Facebook and Instagram. From the Saddle. I just need to take five and just go away and recover. <laughs> Not even high pressure, I don't know the word to describe it. <laughs> From the Saddle. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, this is From the Saddle. Linton Tapp had a typical territory childhood riding horses and hunting, and not a whole lot of schooling. A combination of heartbreaking events, including an accident that could have killed his sister, forced him to imagine life beyond the red dirt and landed him in the most unlikely of places, on national television in a cooking competition. I've known Linton for a little while now, and I'm so grateful for how honest he was about his journey throughout our conversation. No subject was off limits, including his complex relationship with his father, his career lows and his burning desire to return to the bush. From the saddle. From the saddle. Hi, Linton. Thank you for joining me. I am excited to have this chat with you. I am so excited to have this chat. And it's been a long time coming, Caitlin. It has been a long time. <laughs> I think we are hitting like 15 months now we've been planning this. <laughs> I was going to say four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got a long memory. Isn't that the way that, you know, a parent's mind works? Four weeks is actually 15 months in the real world. Yeah, you are in the fog. You are in the fog. So, Linton, I personally know a little bit about you, but let's discover a lot. Now, you are born and bred in the Catherine. You grew up on your family's cattle station. What was Linton Tapp's childhood like? Oh, dear. It was, um, my childhood was probably like most country people's childhood in the regard that it was full of, full of the outdoors. You know, my daily routine consisted of not much school, actually. I'll point that out because yep. <laughs> it is an important foundation, I think, of <laughs> my story <laughs> um, because there were some trials through my education. But to my childhood, you know, the, every day consisted of being out and just working the property. So we, as a family, collectively, you know, were beef farmers, cattle farmers in the top end. So Brahmins were our herd or our breed. Yep. And, uh, you know, my dad was in the mentality of his dad, and I'm sure his dad before him, when you sort of bred your workforce. Yeah. Dad never got to the 10 that he was a part of, but he had uh, myself and my two sisters who were actively involved in running of the property from a very early age. I remember, you know, I could, all of us could ride a horse before we could walk. Um, you know, I was only having a conversation today with a babysitter that. Uh, you know, we used to run away as kids, but when you had 2,000 square k's to do it, it wasn't a, a very big deal. Well, at least for us it wasn't. If, if you had have said to our parents that we'd run away in the city, they would have had a heart attack. But the fact that we were down in the back paddock somewhere never, never seemed to bother them. So that was our childhood, you know, lots of horses, lots of swimming, lots of outdoors, um, you know, it was the top end. So yep. it was very, very, you know, we had a great dry season, perfect weather, had, you know, the stereotypical build-up and monsoons. So I really distinctly remember that from my childhood because as I got older and used to run our stations, uh, we didn't get those weeks on end of wet weather. And that's something that almost 
I hold a little bit of nostalgia for is as a kid, you know, always around Christmas, it'd almost be like the Boxing Day test would start. Yes. And that would give Dad and myself an excuse to sit down for a week because there was also the monsoon. So we'd just watch the cricket and enjoy the Christmas festivities. So, you know, that sort of were prominent features of my childhood. And I did mention horses. A lot of the cattle farming horses was probably our biggest passion as a family. And, you know, I definitely took involvement in that. It was probably more so because it was what our family did more than what I wanted to do at the time. Yeah, it was just what you knew as well. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's how up until I think there's been a shift in the agriculture sector in the last 10 years because I actually deal with a lot of uh, young agricultural kids these days in my new career. But, you know, when I was growing up, it's just what you did. You did as your parents did and your parents did as their parents did and it just went like that for generations. So we rode horses and grew cattle and that's what we did. So, Linton, you know, majority of our listeners, the TAP name is not foreign to them. So, you are Linton TAP. Who is Dad and who are your family? Just to paint a picture. Yeah. Well, I wouldn't um, be surprised if your listeners did get confused with who my immediate family are because there are a lot of TAPs going around. Yes. And they have dispersed around the country. Once upon a time, the TAPs are very... Northern Territory centric, but now they're spread from one end of Australia to the other, yep. and especially from north to south. So my father is Ben Tuck. Yep. My mother is Tracy, mm-hmm. and my two sisters are Courtney and Emily. And Ben Tap is a well-known camp drafter to this day. <laughs> yeah, he is a well-known camp drafter. He, uh, you know, he he's won the won the event that you want to win when you're in that in that circle. And yeah. Yeah, he's dedicated a large portion of his life to it. So yep. um, he, he definitely deserves some of those rewards. Yeah, absolutely. So, Linton, growing up in the Catherine, you are obviously, you know, for those that don't know, now Melbourne is home and you are a chef. Big change, big sea change. What was it that got you into cooking initially? Like, you know, mum would have cooked on the station. We know what led you, well, we're about to hear what led you to Melbourne, but what was food like growing up for you? For me, was, you know, on the station, we're always told that, you know, the camp cook was the most important role because uh, I'm sure most of your listeners have experienced it and if it's not your listeners, uh, definitely a lot of your friends and family capable and would have experienced on the land. If your ringers don't have a good hearty belly full of food, they are going to get bugger all done that day and for any day after that. So we were raised like that and, you know, meat was the centrepiece of our tables. You know, it was meat and tree veg and in the early days it was all, all our veg was from a can uh, and then refrigeration took over a bit more into my adult life and we had some frozen veggies. But let's not forget, like, you're, you know, you're a long way from anywhere. So fresh fruit and veggies, unless you grew it, it wasn't sustainable to buy it. That's exactly right, Caitlin. Like, we were a long way from anywhere. We 
in the early days we're at Roper Valley, which was about uh, two and a half to three hours from our nearest town. And we were lucky enough to have a field road at that stage all the way. But then later in life, we were in Arnhem Land and half the road wasn't sealed. There was still three hours, but half of that was on unsealed, really corrugated roads. So not only did we have a distant issue with transporting fresh goods, we also had an issue of a lot of breakages. So you would put stuff in the SD or put stuff in the Toyota. You know, we all know how shock-absorbing those Toyotas can be <laughs> and, and not. Uh, and so a lot of things would break along the way. So we had to be really selective with what we could actually transport out to the station. Yeah. And, you know, funnily enough, my dad didn't really put a big emphasis on the food side. So I don't think that, you know, it was a big priority for a lot of our staff. However, I sort of looked at it differently for a couple of reasons. One of you know, dad's closest friends through life and one of our great family friends, Bill O'Brien, who also calls him a campfire singer, um, calls himself a campfire singer. He's an absolute larrikin in character and a great territory personality. But in the early days, before he shot to stardom, he was our camp cook. Yeah. And he had a passion for it and love for it and made it seem very enjoyable. And for a young boy who knew nothing else but to break and ride horses and muster and draft cattle and brand wieners, uh, you know, being in the kitchen and making a damper or cooking whistles or something like that was something completely foreign and really entertaining. Mm. So on the station, it is a sensory overload, but... Once again, coming back to if it's the only thing that you know, uh, you sort of a bit spoiled for choice. So for me, at a young age, the kitchen was an outside experience, and that's what drew me to it. Yeah, so curiosity. It was curiosity that drew me to the kitchen, and it was also uh, a change-up, you know. When you've got hundreds and hundreds of kilometres of scent to check and thousands of cattle to put through the yard. If you could get half a day doing something completely different and turn your routine on its head, you'd take that opportunity. Especially, you know, another thing that was a really prominent part of, you know, my time on the properties is that we didn't have um, entertainment. Dad didn't really believe in TVs or or videos or any of that type of stuff. So, you know, we didn't have that sort of, time to separate ourselves from being on the station. You know, there was no escapism for us on the station. So the kitchen was that little bit of relief for me at least. I reckon you are a minor in a, like in a majority because I know a lot of men that would run as far away as they can from the kitchen. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I On the station especially, you know, you would have seen it and everyone's seen it. You know, uh, I think Things are changing, and I hope they're changing, but there, in my, I'll speak from my time only, there was a real discourse of toxic masculinity, and yep. the kitchen was seen as a job that was below everyone. Yeah. But from my point of view, you know, I'd achieved a, a lot by a very young age in terms of running our cattle properties, uh, you know, within the camp drafting sphere. Certain circles, I'd felt 
accomplished and really comfortable within my skin, within the within the rule sector. And um, I didn't have to live up to any standards, you know. So for me, being in the kitchen, I didn't didn't take any of that on board. I suppose what I'm trying to say. Yeah. The judgment of the other ringers thinking, oh, he's doing a backpacker's job or a girl's yeah. job, or you know those sorts of comments which were around. I didn't care. I'd look at them and I was like, you're the sucker who's out in 40-degree heat <laughs> cutting yourself on barbed wire and I'm in here making myself some corned beef fritters <laughs> and got the fan on. Like, come on. Yeah, who's the that, smart one? A, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And once again, it really came down to um, an internal um, picture I had of myself. I had nothing to prove yeah. in my mind and I think also a lot of people in, in my inner circle, I, you know, by the time I'd left school and I'd, within a couple of years, I was running our two properties. So, you know, there was three or 4,000 square Ks and 20,000 head and 10 to 20 men um, on any given day. And so I didn't have to be out there and like flexing my muscles and saying, look how fast I can run and look how many head I can draft because I'd already done it. I just, yeah. I'd been doing that every single day of my life. Like I wasn't, school holidays when I had them, they were for work. I was never allowed to go away. Once again, I mentioned earlier, like I didn't do much school in my early childhood up until I was about 12. Yeah. That's because I was working, you yeah. know. So um, by the time I started to really take an interest in cooking, I'd done it all. I'd felt that I'd done it all on the station. So it was something new for me. Like not having those early years of schooling, did you find that it really impacted you once you went off to schooling and and to this day? I was petrified when I first went to, you know, using inverted commas here, a real school. Yeah. Um, And that's a school where, you you know, you're in a classroom. A mainstream school, yep. Yeah, because I had, I was only having this conversation recently with my mum and she'd glossed over a few of the facts, but the short of the long of it is that I went from year four to year seven and that was from year four in distance education to year seven in a real primary school and, you know, the last year of primary school before high school. So I went into to this classroom and I remember on the first day, uh, you know, I was made to spell something. I didn't even know how to spell it. It was I remember the word, it was vicious, you know, and one of the kids pointed out, it's like, oh God, not another one you can't spell. And I felt so small and so alienated from that group of other students that that really made me put everything that I had then all my resources, all my time to try and catch up to everyone. And I think that drive has followed me around through my life. You know, I, whether it was in my education, whether it was in schooling or whether it was on the properties, you know, I really focus on what, it's, what task is at hand and what I have to achieve. That's a lot, at, you know, in, in grade seven when you sort of going from what you know to something new and then realising just how different you were to the other kids and where they were at education-wise. Did you feel angry or can you remember what you felt like? Were you, were you angry at your mum and dad or like it, it's it's at no fault to theirs. It was just what was. No, 
at the time, I was more embarrassed of myself. You know, it, it was I didn't see my education at that time as a responsibility of anyone else's but mine. So I felt that I'd let myself down. And you know, my mum and dad. Um, you know, for anyone listening, they may be judging them, but my mum and dad were kids when they had us. Yeah. Um, you know, they were, they were 24 or by the time they had three kids. Yeah, you know? that's young, So yeah. by the time I was entering year seven, they were my age, you know, mm. I was 33 or 30, 33, they would have been 35, you know. And I was the middle child. There was Courtney who was 17 or something at the time. So, you know, that's a really, you know, in those formative years, mum and dad were learning life as well. So hey, I don't we all? Don't we all? Parenting is just like one big gamble, I reckon. Yeah, I don't think, it ever, I don't think you ever stop learning. No. But those years are particularly important to figure out who you are. And mum and dad had three kids to try and also shape. And, you know, some, some things they really did really bugger up, I'm not going to lie, but some things they just didn't know better. Absolutely. And let's not forget the task at hand was to run the cattle station. Absolutely. And, you know, this ties into a lot of things that happened throughout my life, and especially on the stations. You know, everyone can talk about graziers and, and talk poorly of them as much as they want, but until you have the responsibility of thousands of heads of animals and so technically thousands of lives, the responsibility of that is on your shoulders, you're never going to be able to really judge them and pass, you know, any judgment on them because that's a, that's a really big weight and responsibility to carry for anyone. Absolutely. So, Linton, where, you know, you went, went into mainstream school, where was that and did you go through to grade 12? So, from my... Leap from KSA distance education into real school. That was at E Creek Primary School. This was in the year two thousand, and I remember this. I remember where I went to school in year seven because it was year first. So I went to E Creek State School, and as part of the Millennium graduating cohort, oh, I got yes. a little gold plaque put up on this massive big sign out the front of the school, and I think. You know, the school was 50, so I think there was like seven of us or something. And this was like a, you know, a metre and a half, a metre by half billboard, and they made these little parks about five centimetres <laughs> <laughs> It was quite a sight to behold. Um, but I still think it stands to this day, to be honest. But then from from year seven, I um, went to high school in Tulum Grammar and began boarding because in that interlude, of going to year seven and being in South East Queensland, my mum and dad decided they were going to move back to the Territory and begin contract mustering again. So I had to start boarding school. Was that a big adjustment? Yeah. Going to boarding school, so going to year seven and not being able to spell was one thing. Going to boarding school was a completely other thing. It was so daunting in many regards. But I didn't realise that at the time um, because, you know, I was a kid of the land. I'd grown up in a camp full of ringies my whole life. And I had no idea about the hierarchy of high school, let alone an all-boys boarding school. So when I got to Toowoomba Grammar, and I will just say that I love my school and I'm one of the proudest old boys you'll find. 
But I had a really, really hard time when I first went there. Our year eight in 2001, like the last year where all the bad stuff was happening before they really cracked down on it. Yeah. We had a headmaster who was in his last year who was sort of the old of the old ways, you yeah. know, that turned a blind eye to the thing, you know, doling out punishment and keeping everyone in line. So that year in 2001 at boarding school was one of the toughest of my life, actually, thinking back to it. I'd sort of forgotten about it, but now thinking about it, there was so, so much adjustment. Uh, there was a lot of bullying for me. I, I was really badly bullied because I didn't know, I didn't know how to handle the year 12 because to me, the year 12 is just another kid in school. Yeah. You know, he went a 40 year old ringer who could spend his whole life on the land, mm. you know, um, but to them, they were the most important thing in the center of the universe. So I really had to adjust to that way of thinking and I probably didn't <laughs> too well. Yeah. Um, so I had a pretty tough time at the start, but then I grew into my own at boarding school. It was everything that I'd missed throughout my childhood on the station. There was, you know, other like-minded boys, so there was people from all, you know, boarders from all across the country. The Puma Grandma had the highest population of boarders in Australia, so... You know, there was this great community of country boys there, riding horses, camp drafting, you know, we'd all take each other on leave every weekend. Um, you know, and sports was a big part of my life, playing rugby, athletics, uh, basketball. So once I got through the initial shock and a really tough time, I grew to love that school and everything about it. And I think it left some lasting legacies on me. Um, some of them I've probably forgotten, but I will always hold the, the time at that place close to my heart. Yeah, a massive time in your life as, you know, self-discovery and country meets city, so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> it was country meets city. It was, uh, I remember it just that, God, teenagers have the worst fashion. The lone teenagers from the bush at boarding school in a city. <laughs> I remember there was like so many boat shoes with like denim, no, board shorts with Ralph Ren polos with the front tucked in. There was frosted tips. There was like surf necklaces. Like you name it, we wore it and it looked awesome. Prime I'm, time. I'm, I'm so glad <laughs> that's all behind us because that was, that was really. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm glad there was no Facebook or bloody phones and cameras were only just coming out then because, God, we we're an ugly bunch. <laughs> There's school photos and mum's got them. Yeah, we were all forehead and bloody ears back then. You know, teenage <laughs> boys were an ugly bunch. Uh, Linton, so, you know, school's finished. Then what? Did you head back to the Territory? Yeah, so I've finished, you know, that. Five years at Twindagama was turned out to be one of the best that I've ever gone through. There was lots of reasons why. Um, one, it was it was my grounding because my dad, you know, everyone knows him as the camp drafter and the cattleman and all that, but he was also a 
a property man, you know, he clipped properties in the space of 11 years. We owned 13 different stations and properties and then moved between them all. Yeah. So being in one place consistently for five years was amazing. But the time came to an end and there was a, um, you know, I, I went okay in the schooling side of things, not just in the co-curricular activities. So I was um, off to do vet school. And I thought, you know, like, like most people do, we'll take that year and go back and look after the properties and earn a bit of cash so we can pay for pay for a uni. Yeah. And then sort of, you know, one year started ticking into another and that school kept getting pushed back and pushed back. I did actually go start it, to be honest, because I had a lot of people interested in me completing it, but I just couldn't. Uh, to be honest, I couldn't afford it. I have been, couldn't get government assistance, and my dad doesn't believe in um, tertiary education. Yeah. It's a waste of taxpayers' money. So um, he didn't want to put me through uni. So I had no other choice but to go back to the property. And, you know, that was sort of the start of a real bad stage. I think, you know, I was uh, 19, I assume, and... You know, I threw myself into the land for the next probably four, four or five years until, until I left again. Were you deflated or were you just, this is what it is? Um, I was pretty upset that I could be good uni. You know, I, I thought that a lot of other people had been afforded the opportunity and I thought I'd work really hard, you know, at boarding school to achieve my grades and, you know, get accepted and, not be not go there was a little bit frustrating, but I thought to myself, well, if I can't achieve that career and I can't make it work in any way, then you know, in some way or the other, with the vet, I was going to support the properties. You know, whether I was going to work them as the on-farm vet as well as properties in the area, I wasn't one hundred percent sure, but that was in my thinking. Um, with that now out of the question, it was just going to be supporting the properties again. So I just reconciled within my mind that I, that was out of the question and then that running the properties just as the, as the hand stockman and then, you know, later on the, you know, the property manager, that was my role and that was my duty. So there was a turning point that led you to being a chef. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, my dad and I, Anyone that knows us knows that we have a colourful history and I mentioned earlier, and I'll say it again, you know, my dad was really young when he had me. I think there's 20-odd years between us. So I'm 30-odd and he's 50-odd. So in terms of business and, and, you know, running things and people in charge and giving instructions, they're pretty close ages, you know, Um so we there are lots of things that we clashed over and they, they just grew over time, you know. Um, it was just too many things to even to, you know, it's completely different conversation about all the things that popped up that we were the classic father and son on the land, couldn't make it work, so one of them had to go and that was one was me. Um, you know, a couple of exciting moments. I remember the last time, but one of the, one of the lead-ups, I think my sister having her accident, 
end up putting an enormous stress on our family unit, both physically, mentally, and financially. Um, that was one of the big factors in me sort of deciding that working beside my dad wasn't for me. And, you know, there were some decisions that he made that I thought were in his best interest rather than the family's best interest. Sorry, Linton, just touching on your sister's accident, like Emily, that is her story and I hope to catch up with Emily to hear that story. But just summarise that for me, like what happened in terms of what sort of an accident was it and what was the outcome? So my younger sister, when she had just finished high school, um, you know, one of the graduation varies with November, December, something like that. In the January, a month or two later, she had a horse accident which broke her back and left her paralysed from about the belly button down. And, you know, that was, that was obviously so life-changing and altering for, for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, you know, her, her life got turned upside down. She was... You know, it's something that I often think about and I, I get sad about it because Emily's life were in so many regards was just beginning. Yeah. You know, high school is, is a stepping stone in life. You know, the, the real adventure and everything that happens sort of starts after. And, um, but thankfully, thankfully, she's got more willpower than I ever dreamed to have. Because my little sister, who I still see as a little ten-year-old girl, has um, yeah, gone on to achieve things that you know would make anyone proud and make anyone humble. You know, being a being the extreme accomplished athlete that she is. You know, yeah. that that the half percent make that, not even the one percent. Yeah. Um, and she's done that on the back of a tragic accident. But that was a really defining. Defining her and my sister's accident was a really defining moment in the chapter of our family. And I think you could trace back a real splinter in all our relationships to them. You know, a lot of us had different ways of coping and the classic old school country family. Um, You know, we didn't have a lot of avenues to turn to to talk about it. It was sort of, you know, there was a good shoulder of it left to uh, Courtney and I, um, helping me through it. Yep. And, um, you know, I think that that was really a defining moment in, in my life. How old were you at this point? I was, I was 23. 23. Emily was, uh, you know, she was 20. And yeah, I was 23, 24 at the time. So we were really young, you know. When, when Emily had her accident, there was lots of, lots of things that we did over the course of the next 12 to 18 months um, that, you know, I'll look back at some of the best times of my life, but one of the most memorable and enjoyable and important things I've ever done besides, you know, now raising my son as a stay-at-home dad is moving to America with my sister to help her recover in some way uh, from her horrific spinal injury. You know, we lived over there for 12 months by ourselves and, you know, in so many ways, we forged an unbreakable brother and sister bond over there. And if there is some type of silver lining to an awful situation, that's one of them. 
Linton, I remember watching you on MasterChef. Just what year was that? Remind me. That was 2013. I remember watching you and the chefs interviewing, I think it was Matt, George and Gary, and they asked you what got you into food. And I can still picture this to this day, that you got emotional and you explained that after your sister had her accident, you decided that you would care for her and a part of that was making sure she was consuming the right food to allow her body to recover to the best of its ability. Mm. Does it blow your mind to look back on that now and, and think about that? Yeah, it was like, so at the very fundamentals of a spinal injury and you know, there would be there'd be scientific explanations and I'm sure there's going to be some doctors that will probably take me to task over this, but I noticed with Emily anecdotally that her body started reacting differently to food, you know. Um, and so I, while we were living in America, it was my job to, you know, um, try and help her create a life that was easy for her, you know. So part of that was get her as physically fit and strong as possible. Mm-hmm. And so when I, I my mum went over there initially and um, rented the car because I was, um, I was under the legal age of renting a car at the time, so we had to do a dodgy. Yeah. And so she went and set up the, and got the lease actually for me. Uh, so she got the lease in the car and then she left and I flew over and, and picked it all up. And when I got over there, we walked in and mum and I know they're chocoholics, they're sweet people. So I walked in and I was just garbage everywhere. And initially, I put it all up on the top shelf, you know, so then they couldn't reach it. And then we in a wheelchair and I was like, you're not having it, am I? And it was just too tempting for her and, you know, she was obsessing about food. So I just, you know, within a week or two, I just got all the garbage, threw it in the bin that there's not one bit of junk food coming in this house again. And that was really a turning point in her her relationship with food and I think also her, you know, it also put her on her current path at the moment where she is as an Australian athlete. She realised she had to do a lot of work to, to achieve her goals and we started on that. And, yeah, through day-to-day you know, I would cook for her, you know, up to five times a day and I'd time it all around her training, her mat, her, you know, going to the toilet and I'd work out every little window when she could eat and how her body would react. So I really immersed myself in that world and taught myself how to really look after someone through nutrition. You know, as a lot of teenagers do, you become obsessed with gyms and eat a little bit healthy. But to be honest, looking back now, being a dad who's put on a few kilos, you know, <laughs> when you're 17 and full of testosterone, you just eat a salad and lose five kilos. So <laughs> I actually had really no idea about what I was doing until I started helping Emily in America because I had to really observe what was happening. Yeah. I mean, if I didn't get, if I didn't feed Emily at the right time, <laughs> she would, you know, she would fall in a heap. Yeah. And she would be cranky and she wouldn't have the energy to train. And then that was a waste of our time. You know, we're in a different country. It's not just you go into the local gym. We're in America. 
no one's around and it's costing us thousands and thousands of dollars. So if Emily couldn't train, it's like getting cash and burning it. So I have to really, really be on the ball with all all her nutrition and how to how to cook and through that, obviously being in the kitchen every day, so many times a day, I sort of picked up some new techniques. America was, you know, they're the home of the cooking channel or food network. So, you know, the two the two channels that were on in our unit the whole year we were there were the Friends channel. So America has a channel dedicated to Friends, just on repeat. Emily used to watch that. And I used to watch the Food Network, and that they were our, you know, our outlet. Yep. And I honed my skills through that. That's amazing. All, all, all the classics and just apply it to, you know, to my craft in the kitchen. So that obviously led you to discover the power of food. But how did you go from that to landing yourself on MasterChef in 2013? So how I ended up on MasterChef was quite a, you know, funny story. And it actually wasn't by my doing. So I didn't apply for MasterChef. So this is like one of those. It's not a secret, but it's just one of those things that no one knows. My mum applied for me without me knowing. So I, and I still to this day haven't seen an application form. But there is all these like, you know, basic questions, which mum knew, name, age, you know, where you're born, what, what your career is, so she could fill out all that. But then there's all these, like, creative questions, like, who's your favourite chef? You know, if you could, if you're on, on a desert island, what ingredient would you have with you? Yeah. Like, if you could yeah. be an ingredient, what ingredient would you, would you be? So over the course of, you know, two or three months, Mum would sneak in one of these questions like every phone call <laughs> and I never picked up on it. <laughs> I remember I remember mum asking me like, If you could be an ingredient Lincoln, what would you be? And I was like, what a stupid question, Mum. <laughs> like and like to be completely frank, I was like, What the f are you talking about, Mum? <laughs> um, but then I you know, then I answered it. So what were you? I think I said garlic or something like okay, that. You know, yeah. it's like, you know, everyone needs me. So. Versatile but strong. So that's how that was done. That's how the application was filled out. And then, so MasterChef has a, a pretty routine structure that they follow from season to season. So pre production for MasterChef starts in like October, November. They start filming in January, February. That's pretty much how they run. Yep. And so I, Emily and I got back from, from America in December, I think it was, and I, you know, got back and I was in the territory. I'd, I'd gone back and I'd started chipping and I'd got a call from, you know, this, this woman professing to be from MasterChef and, you know, she saw my application and she <laughs> wanted to wanted to fly me down to Sydney and blah, 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 and I was like, yeah, right, a good one, mate, prank call, whatever. Yeah. And then sure enough, these calls kept coming, and I was like, yeah, oh, no, well, I'm not really keen, and they just kept coming and coming to the point where I turned my phone off, which in those days, you know, I wasn't age reliant on my phone as I am now, so I just turned it off and leave it at home, and well, I didn't have emails, didn't have Facebook, all that jargon, you know. <laughs> So they were pretty keen to get you there. They didn't kind of just so move on to keen. the next person. Yeah, so they, to the point where they started calling my mum and my sisters to wow. get in touch with me. And so 
by this stage, when they started contacting my family to get back in touch with me, I was like, oh, well, I better, you know, I better take this a bit more seriously. You know, so I started up with a phone call with them. I remember specifically, I was driving past back from Darwin to Catherine. I was driving past the old trucking yards out near Nunema, and I pulled up to take the call before I went out of the section. And just, uh, just a phase popped through my mind, and I was just like, what if? And I was talking to one of the producers, you know, and I was like, yep, sure, no worries, let's, let's do it. And, um, you know, I think within, within a week, they'd sent a crew up to film me and doing day-to-day type stuff. And got all those, you know, all these people floating around the internet, me riding a horse, and me, you know, in a cowboy hat and doing all the man on the land thing. Yeah. And then within a couple of, no, not even within a couple of days, I, I flew back with the crew back down to Melbourne and, um, you know, started filming. That is crazy. I know. It was, it was an insane lead up. But then the actual MasterChef itself, I could never have gone through anything like that in my life and never will. And to make matters worse, you know, we didn't have much TV in, you know, in my childhood and, even into my teenage years, you know, I was busy doing other stuff to watch too much TV. And, um, you know, I had no idea about the workings of TV. There were people there that knew, knew the system, knew what they wanted out of it. I legitimately thought it was a cooking competition, which it is, it is, don't get me wrong, it, it is uh, out of all the cooking competition formats, MasterChef is a true version of them, but... But you're the naive country kid that's just thinking he's there to cook and there's some smarty pants, yeah. I just thought we were there to cook and nothing else. (laughs) But it was as much, if not more, about your personality or what the audience thought about you as your food, you know. And and to be fair, I found that out the hard way uh, my second time around because, you know, first time around I was probably had a bit more cut food compared to some of the other people in the show. But this time around, you know, I was a small fish in a big pond and we're up against the likes of Reynolds and, and Poe. That's and, right, yeah. yeah. And a few people like that. So my personality is never going to get cut through. So realistically, my time on the show is going to be relatively short. Yeah. I remember watching you in 2013 and... I just, you were my favourite. Hands down, you were my favourite. I don't know if it's because you were the country kid, but you did look like the naive country kid in there. But then the second time round, it was a total game changer. Something was different. And I remember saying to my husband, Linton's gone. He's he's not going to last this time round. He's, he's not the favourite. You can feel that, if that makes sense. It was almost like because you were the country kid, that was played on in se- in the season you were originally in. Mm. Uh, without a doubt, and now knowing, like, I've spent a lot of time around broadcasting TV and the workings of it, like, there were things there that I was really disappointed about the second time around, uh, you know, between what I witnessed behind camera, off camera, and on camera. You know, without sounding like a sore loser, I don't think that my time regardless of how my food actually tasted compared to what the judges said or say, was going to be shorter than some. Um, and that's just the way it is, you know? Like, I'm not the I'm not the diverse character that they want on TV at the moment. So 
Yeah, absolutely. You can see that. doesn't matter whether it's MasterChef or another TV show. It's ratings sell and it's what the public want. So that's the that's the road they got to oh, take. Absolutely. You know, and I, you know, a bit off topic, but I think a lot of your listeners will be frustrated. I had a meeting with an, um, you know, an executive producer from one of the major networks and they said, oh, you know, do you have, you have anything in you, meaning any race? And I was like, no, I'm a, you know, I'm a country boy, a farmer at heart. He's like, oh, no, well, that's nothing. I was like, well, actually, in terms of Australia's cultural history, we're one of the fastest shrinking demographics in Australia. Yeah. You know, our story's been lost to the pages of history and no one's really around to tell it anymore. And he was just like, oh, yeah, whatever, nah. And let's not forget, like, where food comes from, like, in nowadays, that's so much more important than it ever was because it's been lost. Like there's a generation of kids that think milk comes from the grocery store and that meat ends up on your plate just as it is. Let's like go back to grassroots and discover where it comes from. And you're the perfect avenue into that. Like you grew up in the bush, you've done the cattle, you've done the land, you've done the gourmet chef. Like what is happening? You're like the golden ticket. (laughs) Caitlin, I am as perplexed as you in this scenario. I don't know why a boy that grew up in the country and has also trained as a chef, so has experience from one end to the other, isn't sought to talk about and be a conduit between the two industries. Because a lot of chefs, you know, a lot of chefs bag on a lot about how great their product is and how they go out and see the farmer. And to be honest, they wouldn't know jack shit about what happens out on the farm. And I don't mean to swear, but, like, it winds me up, you know, because I was growing up in the stations and, you know, made a life running them. You know, they don't know what it's like as a farmer to go without power for a few days or, mm. or the hot water's gone. Well, we never had hot water on Mountain Valley, so <laughs> there was times when, you know, or after it's cold at 15 degrees, they would just sort of, you know, if we didn't manage to knock off while it was still light, they just wouldn't shower that night because it's too cold for us. Yeah. You know? Or, yeah. You know, having to put down cattle in the yard for, you know, for their own benefit, you know, yeah. rather than go and die a painful death out Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, there's all this stuff that they don't know. Yeah. And on the flip side, there's a lot of stuff that the farmers and the, and the partialists don't know about the chefs. So yes, yeah. I think I do have a really unique window between the two industries and I have a lot of respect for both of them. Both of them have a very grueling, demanding and underappreciated job. But if you turn the switch off on food, you know, we know the catastrophe that would, that would create and yet these two roles that are so integral to our survival and our functioning of a society are just sort of taken for granted. Yeah, hands down, I agree, and I think our listeners would agree too. So MasterChef led to all sorts of experience. Cleo Bachelor of the Year, what? <laughs> yeah, so there are a lot of different things that came from MasterChef. Yeah, Bachelor of the Year was one thing. So MasterChef, they managed, so this is also a funny story, which is more internal within the network, should I say, but I have since found out after doing MasterChef and, you know, becoming friends with a few people that make TV shows that I was a target for a few of the reality shows 
back in the day. And, you know, one of them being Farmer Wants a Wife. Um, oh, of course, yes. And, the, and the, yeah, and there's another, I've forgotten the other one, but um, so there was a lot of interest. And then post Master Chef, there was, you know, the Bachelor as well, post Master Chef. It was, um, which it was never going to be any way that I'd do that. And, <laughs> like, for so many reasons. But, oh, my God, I'd study, uh, no, it's not for me. I'm not, <laughs> not that type of person. I know people say, would say, and thinking right now, well, the Lincoln, you did a reality TV show. You must, you must be, you know, that way inclined. And, but let's face it, you must have went into that first season of MasterChef a bit naive. Oh, so naive. And to be honest, you don't even notice the cameras. You're that shell-shocked by the whole experience. You just <laughs> tune out to it. You just don't even know they're there. You're just that absorbed in the moment, trying to survive. And, you know, MasterChef has its own tactics to um, keep you on edge, so you, you're not really concerned about the cameras, to be honest. Yeah. So along with the experiences, you also wrote a book. You've done TV shows. And it's been described as tap mania on the internet. How does that feel when a couple of years before you were working as a ringer? <laughs> tap mania. Tap um, mania. Hashtag tap mania. Yeah, it's been a while since I've heard that one. You know, one <laughs> thing that I do quite enjoy and not many people know is that I had a kid named after me in Canada. What? So, yeah, I had a kid, the family, the husband and wife saw my season of MasterChef and they thought I was just a top bloke so they named their son after me when he was born and you know I sent, sent him a copy of my book and you know sent him the odd message wow. and let me know how he's going but you know that's a pretty warming thing to have a kid named after you from people that you don't know fair enough if there's like this grandson or your nephew or something yeah but let's <laughs> just take a minute here to recognise how much you impacted them like they literally named their child after you. I think I think what resonated with a lot of people from the experience of MasterChef and that, you know, have followed me around for a long time is that people just saw that connection with their loved ones, you know. Yes. And yep. everyone's got loved ones. But everyone's got a relationship in their life that they would do anything for or if they were put in the circumstances like Emily and I, they would do the same. And I think that resonated with people. And my way to look after my sister was to cook for her. Yeah. You know, and people recognise that because food and cooking is a universal trait. You know, we're the only animal to evolve to naturally be inclined to go in the kitchen and to be evolved to eat cooked food. So those things are universal languages when it comes to talking about human emotions and human connections. But then you add in the layer of you know, caring for a loved one, everyone likes to think that they would do that when push comes to shove. Yeah. So, Linton, did your upbringing influence you on the show? Did it help you in any way? <laughs> it helped me on the show, but it also was, you know, it also didn't help me in certain circumstances, and I'll explain it. So, being a country boy or a country girl, you know, we know how to work. You know, compared to all other industries and all other people, I would say we're the toughest. You know, sun up to sundown. It hasn't been sung about in every bloody country album throughout the history of music for no reason. We were. So that really helped me. 
But then there are some things that didn't help me, which sort of are connected to the country paradigm, but probably more so my family and particularly my dad. If anyone knows our family, my dad is that you know a bit of bit of stubbornness in there. Um, and so you know, one key thing to pretty much any work, but uh, media, especially you know, media held together by this, you've got to get along to go along. And, you know, a lot of power is held by producers and execs in the boardrooms and in the creative rooms. And so you've got to, you know, you've got to pan with them. And I didn't necessarily do that all the time, uh, you know, because I was getting pushed and pulled in a million different directions, you know, told to wave and to smile at certain times. And yeah. to be frank, I just couldn't be, couldn't be <laughs> so I had a few fights over that and it didn't help my cause. But at the same time, people just recognised I was always, I was always genuinely me. Yeah. And I think that's another thing that helped through MasterChef, but also throughout my career and through my life. I'm, I'm always just genuinely me. And, you know, I never tied myself in a knot and never said something that I'd later regret because I... I'm always mindful and I'm always considerate and I'd never, ever, ever intentionally set out to hurt someone's feeling or run someone down. Yeah. But I'd never not be true to myself as well. Yeah. So growing up, you know, with the camp cooks around you, did the flavours influence how you cooked on the show? <clears throat> growing up in the camp station, 100% influenced my cooking on the show, and still does to this day. Yes. You know, there's yeah. nothing that I love more than golden syrup dumplings. I just oh, turn yes. cold now. So, you know, I love it. And, you know, I talk about it with a lot of my old station friends and some who have left the stations about corned beef. You know, I still love yes. corned beef, and I'd eat it every day if my wife didn't want to stab me when I, <laughs> <laughs> when I serve it up more than once a month. So... Uh, you know, there's things that I love about station food and influence my time on MasterChef and still to this day. I think it is some of the most honest, genuine, and, and warming food that you can possibly eat. Awesome, and, you yeah. Know, obviously, I'm biased. Obviously, I'm biased. You know, if you serve me fluffy white bread, butter, brown onions, corned beef, and three, three, three pickles, you know, you literally, it's close to, it wouldn't quite make it, but it's close to my death dish, you know? Yeah. And I think they came out on MasterChef. You know, there were times that there was a lot of stuff I didn't know. Like, I, I didn't even know what a pomegranate was. I didn't know about seasons, you know? Growing up on the stations and on the land, you know, most people would still know you only get pumpkins and onions and potatoes as fresh produce. So... You know, there's a lot of things that I didn't know, so I'd just really stick to my guns about what I did. So, and and that was meat. Yes. And I did, I did get branded, you know, the, the prince of meat and the king of meat or whatever they made Yeah, me. that's right. Yes, you but, did. Um, I that's because I genuinely enjoyed it and I always, you know, <laughs> for a lot of people, having a, a beautifully cooked piece of meat served with, you know, complimentary garnishes and sauces is a perfect meal. And so I sort of really played to my strength in that regard. But isn't it funny, like, I know when we go to a restaurant and the meat comes and it's all garnished and there's, you know, a pretty decoration and 
some form of fancy potato or whatever. My husband's like, what's this shit? Why, what, why can't I just have like mashed potato or why can't I just have chips? Like bush people are just a no fuss kind of people. Exactly. And, you know, it's not, you know, they, they type the dishes haven't been around for generations for no reason. They got legs, you know. Don't get me wrong, I get caught up in the new crazes and, you know, the new techniques and the new things. But if you did some Google analytics or if you talk to some big restaurants, you talk about some dishes that always sell or recipes that are downloaded, you a few common things. There's going to be creamy mashed potato, there's going to be slow-cooked ham shank, and there's going to be crispy pork crackling. Outback Pantry 
from anyone that I've spoken to, of course they're going to be nice about it, but they seem to have enjoyed it. Um, I've never actually got on online and seen if they're getting reviews. I'm sure there's there's always yeah, there's always those yeah. Someone who is not as much anymore that Semi has been in the public eye. There's always going to be people that absolutely adore something, and there's going to be the people that pull you down. Yeah. And that's just the way. So I know if I typed in our big pantry online, then people that say it's the best book they've ever read, and there's going to be people that say, yeah, I didn't like the font, and I tried this recipe and it was a bit dry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no <laughs> you know, fault of my own. <laughs> yeah, that's just no, no, um, I can't help that. Yeah. So fast forwarding, you're now married and you have a son, Atticus, your wife, Kitty. Have you taken them to the bush? Do you feel a sense of pull back to the rural land or are you at home in Melbourne and that's where oh your God, heart is? Caitlin, I, I just, look, I don't, you don't even need to finish that question. <laughs> I have such an urge to move back to the bush and camp under the stars and all the stuff that I grew up with and, you know, being in COVID in Melbourne was one of the toughest times oh in my, my life. Oh, my gosh, yes. I haven't been allowed outside for an hour and a day and got a young son and a wife and I, I lost all my work, you know, between media and cooking. Yeah. Those are the two hardest industries. So I suddenly couldn't provide at all for my family. It was such a hard time. So I do want to move back to the bush. Um, the reality is, though, I could never go back to the station because what 30-year-old who hasn't inherited something can afford one? Oh, I know, yeah. And, you know, so I'm sort of telling myself it will probably be, you know, in regional Victoria. I have fallen in love with it. I am a territory boy and I'll do everything in my power to make sure that place is spoken of as highly as it deserves to be. Yeah. But regional Victoria has captured my heart, not Melbourne. Melbourne is a stepping stone for me. It's got all the amenities for Atticus. And, you know, when I was a bit younger, had all my amenities, you know, restaurants, bars. Yeah. <laughs> the interesting life. Um, but Atticus, you know, I want to give him the opportunity to be exposed to, you know, friends from a very young age. Yes. Not that I didn't have any, but, you know, ones that you could see every day. Yeah. be nice. Not, not at the camp, not just at the campground. Yes. You know, schools and doctors and... You know, uh, give him experiences that I didn't quite get, but that I would love to be out of the city life, and I have a yearning for it. That you know, I've been talking more and more with my wife that I just need to I get back up to the in his territory for a while with Atticus and stay up there, or head out into regional Vic because it's something that has never gone away from me. I never left the country because I was over it, or. I didn't have a passion for it. Mm. I left the country because our family dynamic couldn't support me and my dad being in the same place. And there was only, well, there was a couple of properties, but <laughs> our dynamic couldn't even support that being 200 k's apart. So <laughs> I had to find something else. I certainly don't think you'd be alone. I think there would be many guys out there thinking, yep, I totally relate. Yeah, I think... You know, it, I think to sum up how I feel about the country is if you ever started a conversation with anyone and you mentioned, you know, your hometown, Catherine, you know, so many people have 
been there or, or, or around there. And that's because it's touched their heart. That rural part of Australia has touched their heart and everyone gravitates towards it to some stage. So, you know, I'm yet to meet someone that left the country because they genuinely didn't like it, not because their circumstances needed them to at the time. Yeah. So, Linton, you've been dealt a fair few low blows over time. You finished MasterChef. COVID hit eventually and like you said, you lost all your work. The the chef industry to me, like I have had a little bit to do with you and every time we speak, it seems like, you know, you're chasing one chef role after another. It's it's not a guaranteed industry. Am I right? Yeah, I think, I think the restaurant industry and the chefing industry is at a time of reckoning because very underappreciated role and a very overworked role and something that I find really fascinating about the industry and a really underappreciated part of it is that if you're going to be your local cook down in the corner pub or you're going to be the best chef in the world at a three Michelin star restaurant, how you get there is totally self-driven. Yeah. Now, every industry needs self-drive. But most industries have a very clear and critical pathway you need to follow to achieve those goals. Within the chefing industry, it's non-existent. So what you want to teach yourself and what techniques you want to learn beyond the classic making a custard, steaming a fish, you know, the basic stuff they teach at taste, you teach yourself and you graph and you learn and you absorb and you read and you research. Basically, every chef is, I think the word is autocratic. You know, they teach themselves. It's, it's fascinating. And with COVID and, uh, and pressure that's been building behind the scenes for us, you know, definitely now I've been there for eight years, and there's a lot of people walking away now. They're like, why am I doing this? Why am I giving up time in the sun, literally, because they work all day and all night? Why am I giving up time with my friends? Why am I giving up weekends? For not much. So it is a very hard role. A lot of pressure. Chefs, my wife and I debate this a bit because she's a lawyer, and she always says it's a lawyer, that chefs have the highest rate of mental illness, and um, heart disease out of all the industries because there's so much stress and pressure in it. Wow. It's not for the faint-hearted. No, it's not. And that's why you, chefs are, you know, chefs are often talk as crazy and because you basically have to be, you have, you have to be a fanatic to be a good chef. You have to be so absorbed in the industry to get anywhere because there's no one, there's, as I said, there's no pathway to take to become the best chef. At the moment, you're doing an incredible job being a stay-at-home dad with Atticus. What's your plans for the future? I hope the future holds for me a job which can sustain my family. Yep. And just be known as a good dad. Yep. And that's what I'm striving to do. You know, I'm a bit late in life to achieve a lot, so... It's never too late. I sort of reconciled that I'll never sort of achieve certain heights in certain industries, but I'm striving to be the best dad as I can be and also support my family unit in any way that I can along the way. 
So what's coming up for Linton Tap? Where can we see you? Instagram, TV, YouTube. There's going to be listeners out there going, I didn't know Linton Tap was down there. What's he cooking? I want, I want in on this. <laughs> so at the moment, I'm looking after Atticus most of the time. You know, my wife and I definitely juggle it, but I'm shouldering the load through the week while my wife's at work. Yep. So I can't cook much anymore, or at least professionally, so that's sort of limited to my, the home. Um, so I've been spending a lot of time um, getting behind the camera with production. So at the moment, I'm production managing for a production company. And that really, to be honest with you, Caitlin, I've said it to a lot of people that ask about it, you know, it's just tapping into my old skills from running a station. Running a production company isn't too different, you know. You've got a bunch of people that have to do all these different tasks that aren't even the same, but are all connected to help the station run. It's the same as a production company. Yeah, people management. Have these people completing all these multi-dimensional tasks to get it, make sure they're done on time and on budget. So that's all that I'm doing. I've applied my skills and I learned through the through the stations into a different industry, and I really enjoy it. It's giving me a creative outlet. It's giving me an opportunity to you know have a wage. I I not only recently just started with I should say this too. I, so I was 18 months out of the workforce, so I really understand. Uh, the conversation around mums re-entering the workforce after having children because I'm <laughs> finding my way around at the moment and you know, learning how to write back to emails in a succinct manner <laughs> and, <laughs> and juggle a few things. But I'm really enjoying it and being back in the workforce and I, I hope that leads to something more substantial in the production industry. And that's not necessarily about being in front of the camera, but that means about telling genuine real stories. That's what I want to do. I want to be able to tell the story of sheep cockies from near Longreach or, you know, bull catchers from Arnhem. Although I think that's been done recently, but I think you get the gist of it. Yeah. There's so many unique stories and important stories to be told. And not many people that are telling them have the experience to really get to the crux of what's important. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree. Well, I hope that you land there and I will be watching closely to keep an eye on that. I do thank you for your time and I better not keep you much longer. So thank you for your chat. Thank you very much. I'm sorry that it took four weeks or 14 months. I think it was four weeks, but, you know, we'll have to settle that debate a bit later. I think we will. Um, it's all right. I, I don't mind a debate. We'll have that debate as long as um, <laughs> as long as long we're eating food while we're having it or drinking a drink or something. I can, I can definitely um, manage that part of the deal. That's for sure, Caitlin. Thank you to our sponsor, Hewitt Consulting and Communications. I'm Caitlin Hewitt, the founder and co-host of From the Saddle. I started this podcast a year and a half ago because I knew important stories from rural Australia weren't being told. We hear stories of triumph and tenacity, heartache and loss from rodeo riders, outback ringers, cattle traders, bronze sculptors and more. From the Saddle is an independent podcast. It's just us telling stories that matter to our community and we are so stoked that nearly 100,000 people have joined us for the ride. We're looking for partners this season to help tell these stories because we think they're worthy of being told. They're a part of our history and possibly our future. 
If you're interested, we'd love to hear from you.